All right, everybody. Hi, this is CJ Wilson for the Bitcoin Bottom Line. I'm joined by Josh Olsewich, and we are going to be talking to you about the latest that's going on in the crypto space, mostly Bitcoin. Uh, big news recently has been Senator Lummis and Senator Gillibrand have gotten together on a bipartisan bill called the Responsible Payments uh, Innovation. And that is, uh, I guess, the big thing we've been waiting for for maybe six or seven months. So let's just hop right into it. Josh, have you had a chance to review the bill at all? Have you? What, what's your takeaway from it so far? I have. You know, I don't know much as we were talking in the pre the pre pre show. I don't know much about Kirsten Gillibrand's position. What What's interesting to me is not only that I used to live in New York, but I used to live in Rochester, New York, and. There's all this this mining stuff in Rochester, New York coming out. I think Foundry is out there. Mm-hmm. And obviously Gillibrand with the bill. And then there's this mining proof of work bill coming. And I also used to work in like the wine industry a little bit. So I, I know the Finger Lakes very well. It's just, it's weird how for me personally, how it all connects. And so like, I understand the issues that are being risen about, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the environmental concerns. Um, but I definitely think like if it's within the limits of the FDA, F, FDA, who, who, who even is it? For, for the, for which part of it? The... Well, there was this concern that like the power plant was heating up the water on a finger lake too much. Right. And that's going to like destroy the ecosystem and mess with the, the climate and the microclimate. And the fish. And, yeah. And, and the frogs. Right? Like, so I'm also, so... I'm also from Michigan though. So like great lakes to me is everything. So like, I understand all of that too. Mm. Um, so I understand the concerns there, but go ahead. What were you going to say? Well, no, I was going to say, so So starting with the New York State bill. So the New York State Senate had a bill that was basically putting a moratorium on Bitcoin mining, specifically Bitcoin mining, because it's specifically proof of work mining. It's not other data centers. It's not factories. It's not, uh, you know, cheese plants or textiles plants or, yeah. you know, advertisements or billboards or anything. It's none of that stuff. So it's, it's kind of weird because they singled out Bitcoin mining as a target to say, hey, we need to we need to limit Bitcoin mining or eliminate Bitcoin mining unless it's from totally renewable sources, which is kind of a weird catch all because I don't think there's any industry in America that actually has more renewable resources being applied to it than Bitcoin or stranded energy or something like that. Just because. Yeah, that's exactly mining. Yeah, because Bitcoin mining doesn't need to be in like a metro market. That's the whole point. It's like kind of in these rural areas where power is cheapest and because power is cheap and power is sparse or as our population is generally sparse, that you have these industrial complexes that sort of come up around where the power is cheap if you have a heavy electricity use. So a lot of people are building Bitcoin mines like mega Bitcoin mines, um, like you said, foundry in places where they used to have aluminum smelting or some other industry that's not really popular anymore. Right, rust, belt. Rust, yeah, belt rust, rust belt stuff. So in Texas, yeah. you're seeing that uh, people are mining on um, methane gas that's being flared. Uh, so instead of flaring the gas, they're metabolizing the gas through an engine. It's just like all this stuff. So, uh, you know, New York has been a big bag of tricks lately. They have Eric Adams gets elected. He's like, yeah, super Bitcoin. Right. And we're all like, whoa, he's going to take salary in Bitcoin. This is great. And then uh, then it's all of a sudden, wait, no, Bitcoin mining's banned. Now, Senator Gillibrand's like, hey, Let's do let's let's have a, a progressive ideological bill. You know, her and Lummis get together. So you have a Democrat and Republican working together on something, which is usually a good sign, especially in the Senate, because the Senate is much more balanced on a 
on a political scale. Um, so that's what's interesting. It's like New York has like three different things going on. And um, it, some of that, I think, is as a result of perhaps the uh, Chris Larson guy, you know, piping money in as he said he was going to spend $5 million to try to convert Bitcoin from proof of work to proof of stake, which I think is the biggest crock ever. Um, but that's where we're yeah. at. And, well, and it's weird to think of New York, like there's New York City, which is what most people are familiar with, right. maybe visited. And then there's upstate New York and the Finger Lakes in that area. And that area is kind of like loosely populated. You know, the population Super. density is. Yeah, is now, I've been up. I've been up there for racing stuff. I've been to Watkins Glen a couple of times yeah. and Watkins Glen is picturesque. It's very it's like there's there's you know, huge trees everywhere. People have like these lakeside cabins and things like that. And it's very interesting. It's very small town, rural America, the way I think a lot of people would imagine rural Wisconsin or rural, you know, like the upper peninsula in Michigan or something like that. But that's, that's the majority of the landmass in New York is like that. It's not, it's not Times Square everywhere, you know? Right. Yeah. Um, So that misconception, I think gets people warped. And the reality is that if you have places like waterfalls or methane, you know, it deposits and stuff like that, that are easy to generate electricity from, then you're going to have all kinds of people want to mine Bitcoin there. So I think that's, that's what we're seeing in other places. We're seeing that in Canada, we're seeing that in Idaho, we're seeing that in uh, Texas or, you know, Pennsylvania or whatever. And I think there's a certain amount of Bitcoin mining that's just going to happen no matter what, right? People are incentivized. It's lucrative. And you're going to go, you're going to pick up and move, or you're just not going to invest in places where you're worried might have jurisdictional problems, legal, not, not legal problems like it's illegal, but just, just the hurdles. You don't want to have to jump through extra hurdles. So that's the reason why people have Delaware LLCs or, you know, Wyoming family trusts or Montana LLCs or whatever, as opposed to, you know, California or New York or something. So I think with Bitcoin mining, it's so specific. It's, there's no advertising. There's no marketing. There's no Super Bowl commercials. It's just that's all they do. And so it's a much it's a super industrial process at that high level. And New York kind of like trying to broom it off to me seems like a it seems like a horrible idea. So it's good to see Gillibrand maybe as a, as an ally in New York, you know, maybe with a little more clear head and working with Lemus on this one. Yeah, I mean, I like I like testing the waters. You know, I like these governance issues, even on-chain governance issues, but IRL governance issues where it's like, okay, there's a risk here. People are getting upset. There's emotion, there's money on the line and people are voicing their opinion as they rightfully should to try to get this thing um, not signed into law. But yeah, but yeah, people can go anywhere. I mean, even in Washington state, we just saw them like one of the electricity providers was like doubling their, their electricity costs. Uh, everybody's homework is listening to this is to check to see your state what percentage, what's the breakdown of natural gas versus nuclear versus um, mm. coal, right? I was I was shocked. I got a notice the other day, the state I'm in, they're doubling the electricity from 11 to 22 cents per kilowatt hour. Doubling. Doubling. <laughs> yeah. Not like up 5%. Right. 100%. Yeah. Yes. See, I, so welcome to my world, Grandma. In California, <laughs> like you can get up to, you can pay up to 45 cents for electricity in California. That's so insane. there's just and the thing is that what governments need to understand, right? And it, a lot of them just don't. It's a math issue. You have a certain amount of people, a certain amount of industry. And generally, when the number goes up with more people and more industry, revenues go up 
from you know GDP or taxes or whatever else. Those, those are all things that people keep campaigning for. They want population growth to a degree. They want people to live in new areas. They want people to spread out. But then all of a sudden, if you increase the cost, because electricity is something that there's no discount on necessarily, like, you know, there's no like triple A discount on your electricity bill, just like gasoline. It's the same price, whether you drive a Prius or a Lamborghini, you're paying the same, you know, for 91 octane or 93 octane or whatever in that state. So the, the funny thing for me is as inflation starts to hit more things, right, uh, we're seeing the things that we need the most, meaning that society wide, like electricity, water, gasoline, you know, for transportation, stuff like that. Those those industries are all like the most impacted. So I think like natural resources need to be managed a certain way. And the best way to do that is to incentivize people to be innovative with the natural resources that are local, because then they can grow. But back to the bill, the the bill we actually like, not the bill we don't like, the, lum <laughs> the Lummis bill, yeah. aka the, the RPI. So I think, first of all, the biggest problem that the government has is they have people interchanging words, right? Crypto and Bitcoin, blockchain and crypto, you know, all these other things. So by clarifying the definitions, step number one, we set the, we set the tone. This is the playing field. This is the 50 yard line. This is the 20 yard line. This is the end zone, right? I'm surprised uh, you didn't go with the baseball metaphor. <laughs> most people, this is most first people, base, this is second base. Yeah, because then people associate the the base thing with like you know hooking up. So okay, I don't want to go there. Fair, I was just fair. thinking of a go touchdown. Ahead, uh, yeah. So so you get to the point. So the thing that Gary Gensler and Janet Yellen and a lot of and whether it's oh, these the, these commentaries they have or you know these heads of state or something like that. The one thing that they're always talking about is oh consumer protection, right? So this is addresses that in a way that I think is good because it says hey, there's a regulation framework that we think this would work for stablecoin issuers. This would work for exchanges. This would work for, you know, people that just want to use it because it establishes clear boundaries, which is what you want. Like, it's like if you're dating, okay, and you don't like somebody, the best thing you can do is put up a hard stop sign and just be like, hey, this is not going to go anywhere you think it's going to go. Like, we'll just stop right here, you know? Yeah. And I think that helps because it saves a bunch of time. The problem that we've had with these sort of like, I'm not going to call them Wild West because it's definitely not, but with definitely looser definitions or, or, or looser regulation from a standpoint of, you know, like the CFTC, which is the Commodities and Futures Trading Commission, the SEC, the American Banking Association, um, the Federal Reserve, the Treasury, you have all these different entities that can technically, or the Secret Service even, kind of put a finger in anything currency related or securities related or whatever. And so the, you have these people that are kind of like, like, pretend ignorant, you know, you have these different uh, exchanges or different protocols that they're like, oh, well, it's not really a security because of this, like, no, it's, it's digital. So it's not a security or no, it's, it's not really a commodity. It's actually money. So I think, you know, Bitcoin is sort of like segregated in this bill. And the way I look at it is, you know, uh, there's like a wedge and I'm doing a thing with my hand. So if you're listening to this on the radio, you can't see it. But basically there's a bouncer at the door. And the idea was that they would have a self-regulatory uh, board or something like that. I think it's called an SRO. But the idea is that you would have a operator of a sort of litmus test and you approach and you say, hi, my name is Bitcoin and I'm decentralized and there's this many nodes and there's no CEO and there's no marketing team. And they go, oh, okay, you're a commodity. You're going to that. You're going to the commodities party. That's the door on the left. And then somebody else says, "Hi, I'm this. 
And uh, this is our CEO. This is our deck. This is like our foundation. Many, this is our foundation. This is how many venture capitalists are in it. And then it's like, oh, okay, well, you guys are going to have to go to go see Gary Gensler and you're going to have to have financial disclosures so that people that buy it can look up and see, oh, you know, uh, Chamath Palapiati has, you know, a billion dollars invested or something like that. Right. So there's yeah. five SPACs yeah. that put money in two years ago. So I think that that transparency is consumer protection. Because if you are buying something and you want to dabble in altcoins, then you have the opportunity to at least do some research. Right now, it's all opaque. You have no idea. Unless you're like really good at figuring shit out, um, you haven't seen uh, really the, the cap table, so to speak, right? Because it's not, a, it's not a publicly traded company, but it's acting like a publicly traded company. So that's where I think this, this works really well. But I also think that introducing this in the Senate first is great because the Senate is much more balanced and bipartisan. And so if you get a delegation of people that's really figured out, obviously, like Ted Cruz has crypto figured out to a degree, you know, Rand Paul seems like he's got like a lot of uh, fiscal responsibility stuff figured out. Lummis has it figured out. Gillibrand has it figured out. So you have a couple people now. You have a little bit of a breakaway group. Now, if we get maybe some senators from other states, whether it's uh, Colorado, Pennsylvania, uh, Montana, you know, some of these other places that they either have Bitcoin mining like Georgia or they have some sort of stake in the game from a legislation standpoint that they want to have. I don't know. I'm trying to think like a job creation thing or something like, you know, like a Rust Belt revival deal. Um, mm -hmm. States like Michigan could benefit greatly from this. Right. So I think yeah. all that stuff to me is positive. And I think that there's a, a segment of crypto people and maybe maybe not so much hardcore Bitcoin people because hardcore Bitcoin people are sort of like their own, you know, bucket. But I think a lot of crypto people are like, oh, regulation's bad. And the reason they don't want to be regulated is because they want to get away with some slimy stuff. So they want to get away with murder. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and that's what happened in 2017 and 2018. There's a lot of ICO people benefited greatly, you know, and a lot of retail people kind of got wrecked. But the, the securities versus commodities argument uh, and the separation of the CFTC and the SEC that, that, that is its own political tornado. And you have to worry about somebody that's too ambitious, uh, basically asking for more power in, in those agencies. So yeah. the thing that we have to watch out for is the, the reason why the government works well in some cases is because, you know, there's checks and balances. So if the president is wackadoo, then Congress can kind of set them aside and say, hey, listen, we're going to try to like slow this down to make sure that no wackadoo stuff gets passed. Uh, then the, the Supreme Court then has a chance to, you know, regulate certain aspects as well. So you have these different layers and like the states and there's there's all these things within the states as well. So I think the states are the ones that have been innovating so far. Wyoming's been innovating. They're trying to get banking stuff passed. Texas has been innovating. People like Texas, it's a friendly business climate. Florida has been open for business. But there's other states that are really far behind on the, the broad crypto space and especially Bitcoin. And states that like California has a has a surplus because they charge people like me so much in taxes that they've got extra money. And, and people like me are like writing letters like, hey, you guys should be buying Bitcoin for the balance sheet for the state. Like just buy some, you know, just just buy like three Bitcoins, see what happens. Um, and I think getting more people involved in, in in the conversation is a key. And now that now that this bill is out there, it's going to be it's this it will have to be like a slow ripple through the uh, through the ecosystem, I think, in that, in that regard. Yeah, I think the distinction between commodities and securities, like 
I never really thought about it. My background isn't like TradFi at all, but mm-hmm. when you think about like pulling oil out of the ground and, and the, the industrial process of that and the, the mirrors to Bitcoin, even gold is similar, right? Um, it's clearly closer to a commodity than a security. Or as you look at some of this other stuff, like you said, it's like, oh, here's my pre-mine and, and here's all these people who paid me to, to make this thing happen, right? Like that's yeah. a different thing entirely. So definitely to see that actually in writing is great. I think ETH still toes that line between, you know, it's in both worlds because it had a pre-mine and it's got proof of work, right? So it's yeah. it's got that industrial side of it, uh, at least in the near term and it has for the past couple of years, for sure. Yeah, because if you're an at-home GPU miner for Ethereum, then you're part of a decentralized system at that point. But right, right. Having, having a pre-mine makes it centralized, right? Having yeah. a foundation makes it centralized. So that's where there's a sort of, I would imagine that they're going to come up with some sort of score sheet to say, okay, you need this many decentralization points, right? The same way that if you're doing a, um, you know, you're, you're judging the Westman, the Westminster dog show, you know, <laughs> you're going to say, oh, well, you know, it's a very obscure reference, but yeah, the coats, we're giving you a 10 out of 10 on the coat, the, the gate, you know, how the dog runs, that's a 10 out of 10. Yeah. Uh, there's slight asymmetry to this part of the dog. So we're giving it a nine and a half on that one, you know, and it's like literally sure. highest, it's a highest score thing. It's not a, it's not a sensation or a feeling. Right. So right. invariably what happens is if you have hard measurements, meaning like factual numerical measurements, then you know what those thresholds are and you know if you can exceed those or, or, or how close you can get to them. And something that like, uh, I forget who it was. I think it was one of the Google guys said this the other day. There's a famous Google thing that they're talking about. Where's the creep line, right? It's like it's like innovative and to a point and then, it, then it's really creepy and they want to get right to the edge of creepy in terms of how much data that they're pulling off. And that's how they stay effective. That's their you know business thesis is that they're going to have all these like cookies that basically track all your action and they're going to sort of score what's likely to make you want to click through things and stuff like that. Yeah. So in the same sense, it's possible that there's a by setting a line, it, you know, you might have more people try to get close to it. But at least at that point, you know, there's a definition of a boundary in the same sense that we know tech there's there's varying degrees of physical assault. Uh, theft, like there's grand theft, right? There's first degree assault, second degree assault. So you kind of know, depending on how bad someone gets hurt, you know, what, what the consequences are of that. And I think that's where it'll, it'll have the consumers thinking a little bit more because then there's going to be another scoreboard, which is going to be how many fines these, these different protocols get, or how many fines these exchanges get or whatever. The same way that if you're going to start a bank account for the first time, you could Google and see, okay, Bank of America, Wells Fargo, um, you know, Chase, uh, UBS, Credit Suisse, Deutsche Bank, whatever, like who's, who has the most fines and why did they get fined? What did they get fined for? Did they get fined for like weird insider trading stuff? Did they get fined for, uh, you know, spoofing metals markets? Did they get fined for, you know, uh, not, not ensuring taxes were collected, right? There's all these different things. So you know what the law is in a lot of cases. <laughs> I mean, like, you know, what's right or wrong, but you're also able to see because people are human and make mistakes and some there's some bad actors who's employing the most risky product you know the most risky stuff and then going from that into the stable coin uh kind of conversation um which is huge right now by the way because of the celsius stuff massive Uh, it's like this boogeyman this tether boogeyman that never goes away because they have all this baggage right and there's, there's there's other companies that don't 
not only do they have all this baggage in Tetherland, but US UST just exploded, right? Yeah. Uh, there's all these issues. And that's why it keeps cropping up. So to see finally like actual verbiage about stable coins, I forget the was it a senator or a house representatives who I think Toomey is the one that's putting Toomey. Sta- yeah, yeah, Toomey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Toomey's got the stablecoin regulations uh, out there or the the study or whatever it is. And I, I think, you know, I mean, I'm a self-confessed Bitcoin maximalist, right? I understand that I'm I'm, I'm aware of other protocols. I'm a, you know, I, I hold US dollars in a bank account, like less now than I used to because I'd rather have more Bitcoin on my personal balance sheet. But um the stablecoin thing for Americans doesn't make a lot of sense. It doesn't make a lot of sense to have stablecoins in your portfolio as an American. I think the, the thing about this is stablecoins in other countries that have totally unstable currencies, you know, that's like you'd much rather have a dollar pegged token if you're in Liberia, if you're in Afghanistan, if you're in Lebanon, if you're in Turkey. Because those currencies have blown up. If you're in Nigeria and you're having experiencing hyperinflation, you don't want Naira. Like, and you're trying to buy Bitcoin with Naira. That's no good. You'd much rather it's like get into all the stablecoin things that you can with Tether or USDC or something, anything that's dollar pegged, and then you're probably better off. Because as your currency slides and its buying power, you know, drops, at, at that point you can sell. You, it's just like like a foreign exchange unit at that point. So I understand stablecoins as a foreign exchange unit. But like arbing stable coins between dollars, it, to me, it's it's a dollar peg. It doesn't make sense, right? If it was like a Satoshi thing and you was like, oh, it's this this stable coin is 1,000 Satoshis, like, you know, whatever. Well, then it's like, okay, just buy 1,000 Satoshis. Like, it doesn't really matter at that point, you know, one way or the other. I, I, I think the problem is that with stable coins in general, if we don't know what's on the balance sheet, of that stablecoin issuer, and we don't know what kind of deals they're cutting and who owes them money. And technically, a stablecoin is supposed to be stable, so it's not going to generate a big interest or a lot of yield or anything like that. It's going to be like a savings account if it's run the right way. But if it's risky because the people that are managing that stablecoin or the company behind that stablecoin are either hackable, so then some of their funds that they have in other places can that are trying to generate yield. Anything yield farming, anything generating yield is inherently risk trade-off, right? So it's like you're getting paid yeah. to take a risk or, or let somebody else take a risk with your money. And that's where people just have to understand that. It's fine if you want to do it, right? It's just like, you know, uh, a fixed income portfolio. If you want to hold bonds because that's your thing and you like that, fine. Like you can't tell someone not to do it. I mean, you can tell someone not to do it, but you can't prevent someone from doing it if that's what they want to do. And I think that's where this DeFi thing in general is murky. And if there's more stable uh, definitions. No, no pun intended. Yeah, exactly. If there's more <laughs> stable definitions and the definition yeah. is fixed, like the Howey test is something that's been going for 80 years or something like that, 85 years. And, and some people will say, oh, well, that's stupid. We don't need some, We don't need a rule that's 85 years old. And I'm like, murder is still regulated. Right. If you murder someone, it's still regulated. That's that's back to the like we're thousands of years back now on that being a law. Like there's a definition. This guy was alive, not alive. So, you know, <laughs> like if you were the cause of him going from living to not living, you're probably a murderer. That's how that goes. And then there's like, oh, well, there's wrongful death, which is not as gnarly or whatever. Right. So there's like these. So with a stable definition, 
you might say, okay, this is not allowed. And then it's like, okay, this is frowned upon. And then this is not encouraged, you know, so there's like gradients of that and saying that, okay, if you have too much risk as a stablecoin issuer, then, you know, because if someone pays you, like, let's say we start Josh coin and Josh coin is be pegged to the dollar. Right. So theoretically, uh, like I give you $500,000 and you give me 500,000 Josh coin, right. Cause it's pegged. So then you take my $500,000, you put it in a savings account and you're earning interest. Well, it's like, is that interest enough to cover the security of Josh coin, you know? And that's really where like, like the question is how big does a stable coin have to be for it to actually be worthwhile? Because inherently any protocol management is expensive. You have to have good developers and all that stuff. It's not like free. It's not like, oh yeah, we'll just put it in there. That's fine. Like there's yeah, a risk. It's not, but Tether is like five people. Like what's like behind the scenes, it's, there's very few people involved. And if we go back to like why Tether was created, and like seeing laws like this put on the books, mm -hmm. there wasn't for exchanges back then, it, there wasn't an easy way to get onboarding uh, for USD. So that's why this USD like derivative was created to say, mm -hmm. okay, here's a token, you know, and then altcoins took off because altcoin exchanges were able to have USD denominated, USDT denominated um, pairs. And then mm -hmm. this, there's just this, this snowball effect of, well, our reserves aren't going to be won't, aren't held in banks that are legit let's say right because banks don't want to touch anything cryptocurrency at that time it's gotten better so you know the reserves are into question the exchanges are into question it's a state's rights versus federal rights thing there's all these like global issues around where the reserves can be is it in some bank in the caymans is it in some bank in the bahamas um so yes any sort of clarity on that anywhere I'm a big federal state federal rights guy. I'm not a states rights guy because mm -hmm. I think I think we do need to set the tone at the top and say like, okay, this is this is what needs to be done. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I think states rights just doesn't make sense for digital currency. But uh, yeah, I'm I, curious on your thoughts on that. But yeah, no, I think that's a great that's a great topic because I think jurisdictionally you see much more favorable places to live. There's some places that the weather's better, the food's better. Uh, the costs are higher, the costs are lower. Um, there's tornadoes in one place, earthquakes in another, spiders in another. Like there's lots of upsides and downsides to living, but at least you have a choice. You can still stay in America, but move from Texas to Pennsylvania to Virginia to, you know, California, wherever. Like you move wherever you want. Um, the real key to this whole thing, though, is you can't move unless you can work in that place. That's the key, right? If you're, unless you're retired, God bless you if you're retired and you're listening to our show. If you're if you're a working stiff like I am and you got to go to a brick and mortar business every day, it's difficult to pack that up and move it somewhere else. So then your option is to sell that business, pay a shit ton of taxes and then move. Oh, it's not really a great option. So what people do is they do like like uh, I call it estate creep where they sort of like start an estate somewhere else and sort of build the reserves of that. And then eventually they sort of like just hop out and then hop from. New York and California. People do it in Florida all the time. People have been moving yeah. from New York to Florida like nonstop. That's like a huge wealth transfer issue. Uh, you definitely want to die in Florida as opposed to die in New York. And you want your heirs to be born in Florida, not New York, because you know you pay that they're going to pay way less taxes when you die and you hand them a dollar, right? Whatever it is. Yeah. So that's interesting. But yeah, I think a digital asset is is crossing borders that's the definition of it like it's portable internet money it's not um 
it, it's it's not a it's not a physical brick and mortar business, right? So the the question is, are people going to people like the actual people behind the American Banking Association or the Federal Reserve or Treasury or whatever? Are they going to allow innovative people to start their own banks and credit unions so that they can service crypto people that, like you said, haven't been able to get service, can't get routing numbers like you can't get a routing number? If you if you're not certified, right, and you can't get certified if the American Banking Association views you as a threat and doesn't want you to get certified, so that's bullshit, and that's something that hopefully this bill allows because yeah. that's where you know you can see not only the regulations having a clarity but also a benefit to innovative people because like you know if there was a bank that was USDC based, right, and USDC is like on all these different tokens now, and so is so uh, like so is USD. T, I think as well. I think Tether and Circle are both operational on like Tron or, yeah. you know, whatever else. It's not just it's not just on Ethereum. So that's that's like a fascinating rabbit hole that I, I'm not really in because, like I said, I don't need those things because I live in California and I travel to Texas. And if I want to buy something in Bitcoin, I just send a lighting payment. You know, and for me, that's how I operate. But on that note, the de minimis uh, exemption for in, in this bill, I think is awesome because yeah. it establishes something, right? And if you establish something, if you plant your flag somewhere, you can either move it down the field with the next, you know, next iteration of the bill or improve it, improve that position, <clears throat> or you can find ways around it as a consumer. So the best part about this is I think if I know this correctly, they're saying anything where the capital gains is less than $200 on a transaction. So what that means is if you're buying, so anything you're buying under $200, for sure, no taxes. Anything you're buying, you would have to have like a pretty big gain on like a $1,000 purchase of Bitcoin to make $200. Like you'd have to be, I mean, at today's numbers, right? It's kind of hilarious. Bitcoin's down around like 21 grand. So it means that, you know, you would have to have bought it at 17,000, bought a whole Bitcoin at 17,000, sold the whole Bitcoin or bought something for Bitcoin on all of that money you know, to pay, to make a thousand dollars in gains or something like that. And then you would potentially have to pay uh, capital gains taxes on it. And at that point, depending on how long you held it, you know, it's not that big of a deal. So I think a lot of people are like, oh, well, it sort of sucks because, you know, it should be $10,000 or it should be, you know, $50,000 or whatever. I mean, yeah, I get the point of that, but we should, we can just, we can just get unrealistic as well and say that if we try to push too far, then there's probably going to be no progress because it's, that's a yes, no thing in the Senate. You either vote yes or you vote no. Now they can change parts of the bill. They can amend it. But, you know, you, you hope to have the framework of the first draft, not the first draft, but the first proposal actually get pushed in. Um, and I think that's that's really cool. All that stuff's good. Um, and the final yeah. thing, the final thing that as a, as a Bitcoin miner, this makes me the happiest. If you hot all your Bitcoin mining revenues, they're not taxed. It's only when you sell for fiat that you are taxed on your Bitcoin gains at that point or your your revenues. Um, so if you're managing your treasury properly, you know, you're going to hodl a majority of your Bitcoin and only sell a percentage of it. And then that, you know, funds operations or growth or, you know, credit or debt or whatever. And um, that allows you to be more than just a, uh, you know, more than just a revenue out and, and an actual hodler, which I think is going to increase mining focus. And it's going to allow bigger miners to be more profitable. And then hopefully, as they're publicly traded and stuff like that, normalize that thing. So more people get just 
normal spatial awareness and field vision on, on Bitcoin mining itself as an industry, which I think can only help. Just I think that can only help things. Yeah, I agree. I and mean, we've been talking about de minimis. Coinsiders are talking about de minimis rule for like 10 years, it feels like. Um, mm -hmm. And people point to that as a reason why, like, oh, I don't want to pay taxes on top of my $10 coffee, right? Like, why would I want to use Lightning Network if I have to worry about taxes? Mm -hmm. So the legacy people have always been focused on that. So to see a de minimis rule, I think would increase transactional activity for Bitcoin, which would be great. It's already seeing the, the infrastructure on, on Lightning. Yep. Uh, but then from a tax perspective, I know a lot of people who are like, I just don't want to move anything around because I don't know what sort of like taxable event I'm going to create for myself. Right. Because, you know, I bought it when Bitcoin was this, now it's this. And I don't want to accidentally create all these taxes out of nowhere, right? So just having anything, like you said on the book, is, is great. And cl clarity on the miners, clarity on the transactional activity, clarity on stable coins. I think in general, this bill is good. It's better than I thought it would be, certainly. And, and it's definitely better than not having a bill out. Yeah, there. exactly. Exactly. It's not perfect, maybe, but it's something, right? Yeah. And we got to start somewhere. Yeah, I think the things that, like, as a, as a Bitcoin advocate, the things that matter the most to me, mining revenues, I think that's big. Having a de minimis transaction thing uh, grows the economy very fast. If you think of the entire peer-to-peer -peer market, let's say, like, the Cash App, uh, Strike, Venmo, PayPal, you know, thing, like, that that general thing. That's a remittances, right? Remittances yeah. and peer-to-peer -peer payments. It's a massive amount of money going through that, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. It's huge. It's huge in lots of places too. It's not just huge in California or New York or Texas. It's huge everywhere. And the benefit to that is if you're a merchant now and you have a clear path to saying, oh, I can take payments because I'm a smoothies shop, right? I, I'm making acai bowls or I'm selling some burgers or brisket sandwiches or whatever. Selling anything that's cheap, it makes way more sense to, to use Lightning now and even convert to fiat right away if you have to, or use something like Strike or Cash App right away, then it does to use Visa. I mean, really, because now you're talking like tiny fees, okay, instant settlement, so you have money in your hand right away, and like the tax thing is sort of blown out, so you're not creating any more like problems for anybody. So if you there's are, there's no chargebacks too, right? There's no chargebacks. It's done. It's final. Like I don't want chargebacks on coffee. You know what I mean? That's just that's yeah. a, that's a headache. Um, I don't want bounced checks. You know what I mean? I want to know that the money is there now. And if you do lightning, it's, it's settled so fast. Uh, and at times, even on-chain settlements are fast. Like, because you, you can settle something. Like, a lot of transactions when you're doing anything other than online retail, right? Or hot food, right? It's like, hot <laughs> food needs to, needs to be like, right? You need to have some sort of confirmation or faith right away. But like cold food, you know, canned goods, uh, large transactions, you don't necessarily need them to settle in that second. Like people are like, oh, like somebody put out there, oh, I want to, what if I'm drunk and I want to buy a house? I want to buy a house like tonight. <laughs> like that's, a, first of all, it's like a super terrible way to buy a house. It's like wasted, like sight unseen. Um, so, so I was like, this is a stupid use case. But the second thing is like, you do kind of want to do diligence period. So having an on-chain transaction for, a, a, let's say you buy a $500,000 house. If you pay for that house in Bitcoin, it, you settle on chain. You're you're not like in a rush, I guess, because right. you can't pick the house up and go. Right. If you're selling a car, right? If you're selling a car, but even yeah. a car, like a car, takes hours to buy. Like it's right. not like you don't need it, this instantaneous. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So like hot coffee, yeah, lightning, boom, there you go, right? Um, and every time I get a chance to pay with lightning, the thought process for me 
is I'm I'm now I can go buy the lightning I can go buy Sats back on, on Cash App or wherever else or Swan anywhere anywhere that allow you to buy fifty bucks or twenty bucks you can just go buy that back. So the problem I think a lot of people had for a long time, which is that I can't use this in my everyday life, or I can't. Right. It's like this bill cuts right into that and hits one right down the fairway and says, "Hey, here's a total use case now to say that as long as you're not." doing massive transactions where you bought Bitcoin at a thousand and are selling it at 50,000, you know, like you're probably okay to have a sort of unclaimed event, which just makes your life speed up. That's the key. Like you just want to live your normal life. You don't want to have, you don't want to be inconvenienced. And people have sort of been paying for that convenience with credit cards and 13.5 to 23.75% interest for the last 50 years or whatever. Um, but if you could have that same settlement and you're maybe a little bit more responsible with your purchases. I'm saying this as someone who sells things and uses credit cards as a, as a well, you spouted life. off those percentages. Like you, you just read the manual, you know, I literally, <laughs> right yeah, because like when, okay, this is, this is a thought process that I have. This is kind of a hack, like a life hack, but literally if, if your credit card is, let's say anything below 15%, the question is what's CPI really right now? Like what's the actual inflation rate? You know what I mean? And so if you pay for it later with dollars, if you're making more, if you're making a stable amount of money, but you can buy something cheaper, then you want to buy it the cheapest way you can buy it. So the cheapest way to buy it now in an inflationary environment is to buy it today, right? Because like the prices on that thing could go up later. And that's mm -hmm. where buying assets with credit always makes sense if the asset has appreciation potential or you pay over time because effectively your dollars are worth less, but that thing is worth the same. You know, if that makes sense. I don't say the value of, of your house or your car goes up, but what I say is the the cost of your money goes down, you know, and if things are inflating broadly, then you can kind of like hang on to something and then sell it, sell less of it at the, at, you know, six months from now or whatever. So I'm constantly looking for like those, oh, 0% interest credit cards and stuff like that. Just say, oh, let me just work the balance down. If I'm, if I can pay 0% for six months or whatever, then that's actually an advantage. Uh, for me, because I have a salary. So I know I can just, I just have to mitigate that salary stuff. But I'm also trying to really improve my credit right now. So I'm trying to get my credit utilization at like the low because I want to get an 800 FICO. That's kind of like my goal, you know, because I don't know, it's just car dealer stuff. I'm dealing with credit reports all day. So yeah, yeah. yeah but, but I think, you know, if we get to the point where I think in the future, a consumer, a regular pleb consumer has a Bitcoin balance and then they're able to get credit as a result of their Bitcoin balance on a short-term yeah. card basis. You can't do that without this bill. Right. You absolutely can't have something like that. You can't have a bank holding Bitcoin and issuing credit in dollars other than a DeFi style exchange. You can't do it with like a Visa or a card company or Bank of America or whatever without a severely like clarified field you know, and if we talk about mass adoption and number go up, meaning people go up, more users, mass adoption to me is a billion people worldwide or 500 million people or something like that. Like nationwide use of Bitcoin is only going to be possible if people know how to use it and how not to use it or how they're not not allowed to use it or something like that. And I mean, and what I mean by that is the institutions, you know, if the Bank of America wants to get in the Bitcoin game. They're going to want to figure out a way to make money off of it if they can charge interest because they, they're effectively issuing a secured credit card against your Bitcoin or a credit limit or whatever. Well, that's cool. Like, I'm, I'm OK with that because 
that's the, that's the advantage that all these investment banks have for wealthy people over right. people that aren't wealthy. People that are wealthy can go take a collateralized loan out against their stock portfolio, their bond holdings, their cash, and they're getting like LIBOR plus one or something like that, which in today's environment might be four or 5%. But, um, you know, whereas like if somebody that needs money from a lower income position goes, they're having to pay, you know, three times that amount. They're paying 15%, 20% for credit because their only option is a credit card. So, you know, because they don't have any assets, they don't have sizable enough assets to qualify to have a Merrill Lynch account or, a, you know, U.S. bank account or something like that. Um, and that's the thing that, that Bitcoin can really solve. And now now there's a like I think there's an actual runway now and a path forward. So a Bitcoin user can build credit, you know, and use Bitcoin and get paid in Bitcoin. You know, a small business can really do that. Um, you know, that's that's to me the benefit downstream from this, which I don't think a lot of people see yet, but I think that's where we can land, you know, in the next two years or something. Yeah, I agree. I mean, a lot of us hardcore crypto guys have a credit card just to establish a credit score <laughs> because like we our money is not in the traditional financial pipes, you know, it's not in that system. So yeah. I think we have to yeah. I think we have to leave it there. I think that's a great place to leave it. We'll leave it right in the pipes. Um <laughs> I think uh well Josh, thanks. Um I think we need to talk a little bit maybe openly on Twitter about what's happening in this market and and see uh see what's going on with these these big whales and these big funds and how all this stuff is related but i think uh we should save that for another time uh, yeah it's just uh, just real quick it's a lot of forced selling and so that is indiscriminate of price indiscriminate of ta macro everything right it's, it's yeah. literally guys getting carried off the floor or guys getting <laughs> guys getting called saying hey your margins do and they don't answer um and that's that's gonna have detrimental effects on the market for sure yeah well let's hope it stabilizes soon so we can actually build back up again but uh Josh, thanks for your time. Uh, thanks for listeners. This is another episode of the Bitcoin Bottom Line. I'm CJ Wilson signing off. Thanks.